Uh, if you're visiting today, we're glad uh, that you are with us, and I do want to wish all the mothers a very happy uh, Mother's Day. I'm excited that my mother uh, is here somewhere in the congregation, so mom, happy Mother's Day to you. I look forward to spending time with her this afternoon, and I trust that you will have a great afternoon as you honor uh, the, the mothers that the Lord has been so gracious uh, to give you. Uh, perhaps it's appropriate on Mother's Day that we will be reading about five daughters of Zelophehad. And uh, so, we are, we're studying the book of Numbers and have been since January. And so if you're visiting, I want to give you the context of where we come to our text today. The reason that we're looking at Numbers is it's very difficult in our day and age to convince believers that there is no father without the mother. There's no real understanding of of how to put the gospel together and to work it out apart from the church, apart from the body of Christ. People will say, well, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm really not that into the church. I believe in Jesus. I worship God on the golf course or fishing or whatever it may be. I just stay home. I've been busy. It's been, been tough. And yet the scriptures are very clear that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So what John and I decided to do was to show you that the church is in the Old Testament, that God deals with individuals like you today in the context of his people as he is working out redemptive history today. And if you're a believer, you are just as much the children of Abraham through faith as God's own people at this time. So that's why we're looking uh, at the book of Leviticus. Now one last thing. Let me tell you where we are now. We're at a very pivotal point in the book. We're in the 38th, 39th year. And we're going to read about the second census. There shouldn't have been two. But God gave the first census almost 40 years earlier to prepare the people to worship and enter the land of conquest to fight for God's purposes. But as you know, they sinned. They rebelled. And because of that, they died in the wilderness. So we're going to come out of the gates seeing this in the first few verses that we read. And then we move to chapter 27 and see amazingly what happens after God blesses uh, his people this second census. So, with that introduction, I want you to read with me. And uh, so, we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and it's here in your text this morning. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar, the priest, who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron, the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord has said to them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. And in chapter 27. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, the, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Melah, Noah, Hoglah, Melchah, and Tizrah. 
And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar, the priest, and before the chiefs and all the congregations at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. And Moses brought the case before the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you'll transfer the inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan. And he shall possess it. And he shall be to the people of Israel a statute and a rule, and the Lord commanded as the Lord commanded Moses. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you see it, you shall be gathered to your people and your brother Aaron, as your brother Aaron was. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zen when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy as the waters before the eye, at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Mirabai, of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zen. And Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord God of the Spirit of all flesh appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And so the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him, and make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest with some of your, invest him with some of your authority that all the congregations of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire of him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. And at his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the scriptures. We thank you that in them is contained the gospel. We thank you that through your scriptures... We're able to know you, to know life that is found in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we ask today that your spirit would work, that you would open our eyes to the importance of the body of Christ, the importance of participating in your work through the body of Christ. Father, we pray that you would bless uh, this time in your word, that you would open your word to our hearts and our minds that we might respond in faith and know the great hope that we have in a God who is gracious and good. And we ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. I spoke with a young man uh, yesterday. 
who recently had moved to Athens. And because he was new to Athens, he, he was in the process of making new friends. It said it had been difficult. And as we continued to talk, we began to turn towards spiritual things. And uh, this man told me that he was not a believer, that he did not grow up in a Christian family. But that he had known other Christians and he had some friends of his that were Christians. And one of the things that he said that was interesting to me was that Christians have a ready-made community. And the reason is because in the community of believers, there's something that transcends the community. And that is the living God. And so as we began to discuss that, I started telling him that one of the things that makes Christianity so unique is this, is that ultimately our faith is not about personal beliefs, it's not about personal meditation, but ultimately what it means to be a Christian is that we come to Christ not through right thinking, but through a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But this great mystery takes place in that when we come to Christ and we're united to him by his grace through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're also united to one another. So God has ordained the body of Christ for us to know what union with Christ is all about. Now what we've been looking at in the last uh, several months is that God works in the context of his people. We see that God is the God of the Old Testament who's calling a people to himself and it is the church first revealed in Israel, the people of God. And God certainly deals with individuals. He deals with Moses. He deals with Miriam. He, he deals with, with Joshua and he deals with Caleb and we see throughout the book of Numbers that God is in, dealing with individual people. But he deals with individual people in the context of all the people of God. That God is revealing himself to the world through the church, first in the Old Testament, but also in the new through the body of Christ. And so in the same way that we have been saying over and over and over again that you cannot be participating in the work of the kingdom of God apart from being actively involved in the body of Christ. God reveals himself in the midst of his people. For it's in the midst of his people that we discover the gospel in many ways. As we participate in loving one another, forgiving each other, pointing each other to Christ and building each other up in our faith. It's in the community of believers that our faith grows, that our love grows, that our understanding of who God grows is within the body of Christ. We're going to see that in our text, but let me ask you this this morning. Are you participating in the work of the kingdom through being actively involved in the body of Christ? It is impossible in some ways to grow apart from being connected to one another as we are connected to Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. God has ordained the body of Christ through the preaching of the word, through the sacraments, through small groups, through one-on-one -on -one relationships for us to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's clearer as we look at the Old Testament, it's clear as we look at the New Testament that God calls leaders, He calls shepherds, He calls us together to advance His kingdom. Now there are three things that I want us to observe in our text this morning that I think confirms this. And here are the three things I want us to say. First is that God, we see, is sovereign in the midst of His people. God reveals His sovereignty in his reign in the midst of his people. And secondly, that God is gracious to his people. He shows grace. He's slow to anger. He is patient with his people collectively and individually. And then the last thing I want us to see is this, that we're to respond to this grace. We're to respond to this sovereign God in the context of his people. So what's the first thing to see from our text? God is sovereign over his people. He is sovereign in the midst of his people. If you read the Bible very closely at all, one of the things that you discover that the Bible teaches is that the God who is there is the God who is absolutely sovereign over all his creatures. That not only has he created us and created everything out of nothing, But throughout the scripture, we see that he governs all his creatures and all their actions from the greatest thing even to the least of things. We'll see this in a moment. But one of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. And we certainly see God's reign in the life of Eric Little. It's a movie about a missionary who put his missions aside because God made him fast and he wanted to run in the 1924 Olympics. And uh, he eventually went to the mission field and eventually died in the prison camps of uh, uh, Japan uh, under, under the Japanese. But it came to all the training. He was ready to run for the gold medal and the race was on the Lord's day. And the good Scottish Presbyterian that he was, he would not run on the Lord's Day. And so there was pressure that came to bear upon him, if you remember the scene, where King Edward, uh, he has ushered in before King Edward. And uh, King Edward was convinced that he could convince Eric Little that he should run for the king and for England. And in humility... Eric Little graciously said to King Edward, I respect you as my king, but I serve a king who rules the nations and he has my allegiance first. And so the very next scene is the day of the race. And uh, it was switched back from the slow motion race of these men running for the gold medal And Eric Little, who had been asked to speak in a church there in France. And as it was switching back and forth, Eric Little was reading Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 says this, Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. And he weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. And before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless. 
and less than nothing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded that he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers? He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. It's a very powerful scene as he's reading this and seeing these men who have now passed away running for the goal. God is sovereign. Now, where do we see that in our text? What is amazing is when God gives the second census, and the second census is taken. Our text tells us in verse 64 that not one of them was among those counted by Moses and Aaron the priests when they counted the Israelites in the desert of Sinai. For the Lord had told these Israelites they would die in the wilderness and not one of them was left except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Now I want you to think about this for a moment because I began to process this as I was thinking about the sermon. Is we see that God's sovereignty is in the fact that not one person other than who he said would enter in entered into the promised land. So I started thinking practically about this. I mean, he was sovereign over every single death. Perhaps there were accidents that were involved. Maybe somebody fell on a tent spike. Maybe an angry camel trampled someone. Or it could have been that they became sick. They got appendicitis and they died. Or perhaps they had heart disease or cancer or some other form of disease and they died. Perhaps for some it might have been that they were in such great despair that perhaps they took their own lives. But what strikes me is this, that God is absolutely sovereign and kept his promise that though hundreds of thousands would not enter in, only two did. David puts this way in Psalm 139, that the days of my life are ordained of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ says this in the Sermon on the Mount, that you will not add one breath to your life except what God determines. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. God reveals himself as sovereign in the midst of his people. And we've been through a lot together, haven't we? We've seen a lot of wonderful things. God uh, bringing people together, people getting engaged, people that met at Redeemer right here in this tire company. So there's one good thing that's come out of it, right? But we've also seen uh, great sadness as many have gone on to be with the Lord in our midst. So God is, God is sovereign in the midst of his people. And to not say that to one another, to not hear the preaching of the word and, 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 and the assurance of God's sovereignty that God is in control of our lives and to be, as it were, moved off on your own to try to determine what's going on in your life apart from the body of Christ and God revealing himself leads to utter despair. 
and rebellion. What are some practical ways uh, that believing in the sovereignty of God should impact your life and impact us as the body of Christ? What are some practical ways? Well, I could come up with a list of 10 or 15, but I want to give you two. Illustrate it, move on to the next point. The first is this, since God is intentional about every detail of his creation, or he wouldn't be God, right? Then we must be intentional about every aspect of our life. I want to ask them, do you really believe that? I don't know what's going on in your life. But are you beginning to see God's sovereignty in such a way that you do not give lip service to his sovereignty, but that you are beginning to live intentional lives yourself? Everything that you do. We have six presuppositions here at Redeemer. And you know what number one is? God's at work. Sometimes great stuff's happening at Redeemer. We're seeing people come to faith in Christ. We've seen people come, seven or eight or nine people in the past six months have come to faith in Christ. And sometimes we don't know how we're going to pay the bills. Sometimes it doesn't seem like God knows what he's doing. But God requires of us together not to give lip service to his sovereignty but to enter into the realities of what he is doing, that he is foreordaining whatsoever comes into your life. Do you believe that? Maybe you don't want to believe that right now because you're living in sin. Because you're moving away from him. And the very thought of God being sovereign over your life is a scary thing. Maybe I've uh, shared this with with you before, but uh, if I have, forgive me. I'll just give you an example of this. Recently, I was probably a year ago, I went to McDonald's to get a Big Mac, or I can't remember what it was. But you know, you're, you're not supposed to just go to McDonald's, right? You're not supposed to just go out to eat or to go to the movies. You're to go in the context that God is foreordaining whatsoever comes to pass. I don't know why I like McDonald's. But it's somehow in the sovereignty of God, maybe because there was a McDonald's sitting there. And so I went to McDonald's and uh, the girl messed up my order. Sovereignly messed up my order. (laughs) And I could tell the girl didn't know how to switch it out. She was new and I think she'd already bothered the manager one too many times. I picked up on this. And so I said, you know what, i tell you what. <clears throat> Whatever it is you got there, I'll eat it. That sounds great to me. <clears throat> there was a woman sitting, standing next to her who was a cashier. She was watching the event. And uh, she said to me, you're the pastor at Redeemer, right? I said, yeah, how did you know that? She said, my son is involved with downtown ministries. He plays on the one football teams. And I want you to know how much I appreciate what you're doing. Now imagine if rather than being intentional, I had um, kind of gotten mad at the lady, demanded that I have my order changed. Do you understand that what happens in space and time would have affected her? 
God is sovereign over everything that we do. We should be intentional about everything that we do. Now, that's the good story about me. You say, wow, way to go, Pastor. You're uh, being intentional. Way to go. Okay, well, I was going down 106 on Thursday, doing a good deed to go up see my son, fix the car, had my wife with me. And I went through a, a, a zone that I didn't know that it was almost 20 miles less. And uh, I really, I, you know, I'm doing like 45 miles an hour, 46. But you know what? That, the speed limit wasn't 55. It was 30. And, of course, this policeman's doing his job, right? He's doing what the law says you're supposed to do. He says you owe X amount of money. <clears throat> and, um, I mean, he said you, you got a ticket. And I was hoping he'd be nice and go, hey, you look like a nice guy. And so after he gave me the ticket, I'm unbelievably angry. You know, I'm doing my good deed. You know how that is. You're serving the Lord. And, of course, my wife was so gracious. She was she's sitting next to me. She said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry, honey. And you know what? I was mad at her. <laughs> and I think I hurt her feelings. And, uh, but Mary Beth's pretty tough, so. But you know what? Obviously, at that point, I was being an atheist. I was not believing in some way when I saw that blue light and saw him back there. You know, when you look in the rearview mirror and he starts writing, you know that you're done. And I was angry. Not one person went into the promised land because God said that not one person would enter into the promised land. Now, what should the sovereignty of God do for you this morning? It should do one of two things. Number one, it should either, A, bring incredible security in your life, that you little children, you need to understand this, God is in control of your life. That he loves you, he cares about you, and sometimes when you're 13 or 14 or 15 years old, you're not real sure about that. But God loves his people. If I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, I could not get in the pulpit every week to preach the gospel. So there's some real practical application there. But also, not only is there the positive side of security, there's also the warning to you this morning if you are living a life that's not intentional. Charles Spurgeon says this, about this text, the great Baptist preacher. Beloved, we too are passing away. The pastor and his present helpers must themselves be summoned home in due course. The march of the generations is not a procession passing before our eyes while we sit, like spectators at the window. But we are in the procession, procession ourselves, and we too are passing down the streets of time and shall disappear in our turn. We too shall sleep with our fathers, unless the Lord shall speedily come. And so I hear a clarion blast sounding out from the graves, which lie behind us. Be ye also ready. But God reveals these things in the context of his people. If you're not with God's people, if you're not hearing, you're not here today, you don't really hear about the sovereignty of God, and you don't believe it. 
But here's the second thing to see from our text this morning, and that is this, that God is not only sovereign over His people, but God is gracious to His people. Listen, one thing I've discovered over the years I've been a believer is God is patient. God is kind. God is very slow to anger. And we see that several ways in our text. And the first place that we see this is in his census, the second census uh, that is taken. God made a promise to his people that they would enter in. And those who rebelled, they, they, they died in the wilderness. But God is faithful to his promise. He dealt with those people for 40 years. But in the process of the people falling into unbelief, God raises up a next generation. A generation that would enter in, that would conquer the land. Why? Because they were better than their forefathers? Now you'll discover that they're not. But because God made a promise to Abraham, didn't he? God made a promise to Abraham that through your seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so he graciously gives a second census. You know, as I've studied church history, there have been many bleak times. But what is amazing is to see how God constantly is raising up a next generation that is faithful to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the second place that we see God's grace is not only in the census, but in God's response to the request of the daughters of Zelophehad. There we go. Zelophehad had died. And according to our text, he died in the wilderness because of his own sin. He died in unbelief. And because he died in unbelief, he had no no sons when he died in unbelief, and so there was no inheritance to carry on the name of the Father. And that was a sign of God's judgment, that your name, that there would be no name that would be cared for. And so the daughters came on behalf of their father, and they asked of Moses that their father's name might not be wiped out, but that an inheritance would be given to the daughters. And so we read in verse 5 that Moses brings the case to the Lord. And listen to what the Lord says. The Lord spoke to him and said, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property. Give them a share among their father's relatives and turn their father's property over to them. Now here's the significance of the ruling. It's more than at stake than the civil rights for women. Duguid says this, the commentator, Here the Lord is declaring that the effects of grace are wider than the judgment of death caused by man's sin. Though he sinned, his name should be obliterated because God is gracious, because God is always working among his people. He gives gives these daughters an inheritance and his name continues. It's an encouragement to the next generation those who would enter the promised land, that though their, fathers, their forefathers had sinned, that God would be gracious to them and lead them into the land. 
God is gracious. He continues to work in our lives. And then, of course, we see God's grace in that he continues to bring leadership and give leadership to the people of Israel. God has chosen a people. And so he raises up leaders for his people. We see this at the end of the chapter. When God shows his grace to to Moses that though he sinned greatly, he is gathered to his own people. He says, you'll be gathered to your fathers. God's grace to Moses, God's grace to Aaron. But Moses is concerned about the children of Israel. He said, they need a leader or they will be like sheep without a shepherd. And so God raises up Joshua, a man whom God's spirit dwells. So that they might not be like sheep without a shepherd. God shows his grace and his mercy in that he gives us leaders within the body of Christ, men and women, to point us to Jesus. To give us the grace to grow in our faith in the context of the body of Christ. So God is not only sovereign, God is gracious. But one last thing to see as we come to the Lord's table, and that is this. What will you do with this? We're to respond to God's grace. There's always the response. These things make no sense until we respond by faith in what God has revealed in his word in the person of Jesus Christ. I often, when I preach, I wonder what people hear. Uh, Perhaps you don't believe God's sovereign. Or perhaps uh, you believe in God, but you're not sure that he's sovereign in your life. You're not so sure if he's gracious or not. You're not so sure that if he's there. One of the things that theologians talk about, and we've talked about this before, is we talk about the immensity of God. And the immensity doesn't mean that he is big. The immensity of God means this, that he is always everywhere in the fullness of his glory. God is everywhere in the fullness of glory throughout the universe, and he has to be or he would not be God. But the fact of the matter is, it is God who determines whether he'll peel back that glory so that we might see who he is and respond. And that response is through faith. You know, it's amazing to me as you read the scriptures. It's how God is constantly revealing himself to his people and there is no response from them at all. If anything, there's the opposite response. God reveals himself to Mount Sinai. All his glory, the people of God, and the people say, Moses, you go. God reveals himself to his people through Jesus Christ. And he came to his own, but his own received him not. I was reminded of Jesus' healing of the paralytic. And the response of God's people was to kill him because he said that he could forgive sins. I think of the response to Lazarus when Lazarus was raised from the dead in John chapter 11. As Jesus is showing that he is the resurrection and the life. And what was the response of the people of God to Lazarus? Isn't this amazing? To kill him. Less people believed in the Lord Jesus Christ.
Christ. You see, we must respond in faith. But where do we see that in our text? We see this in the daughters, Zelophehad. Notice what he says in verse 2. And so they approached the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there they stood in front of Moses and the priest Eleazar. The leaders and the whole community were there too. These women of this next generation respond in faith, and they come to the very presence of God. They come to the tent of meeting. They come to Moses. One commentator says that they are the feisty females of faith. That they responded in faith to the promises of God, a new generation. By faith they come into the very presence of God and they make their request. And what is their request? Their request is not looking backwards. It is looking forward to an inheritance that they have not yet received. That God would give them that inheritance. Charles Spurgeon says this about the importance of faith to the people of God, the covenant community of God. These these women, these five daughters, are responding in faith to what God would promise. But the generation before did not, and this is what Charles Spurgeon says to you today, if you believe these things, but you are not responding in faith. If you're not inviting God into all the areas of your life, His sovereign rule and reign in your life, if you're keeping distance from Him, it is not enough to have the covenant signs. It is not enough to have covenant beliefs. You must put your faith in Christ. Charles Spurgeon says this about the first generation, and then I come to a conclusion. These people went a certain way with Moses toward the Lord's promised rest. They did come out of Egypt. They were numbered with the Jehovah's people in the numbering at Sinai. They were separated from all the world and the quietude of the wilderness, but we read that there was in them an evil heart of unbelief. In heart they went back into Egypt. It is not enough to begin well. He that endureth to the end shall be saved. And then he talks about what they had. Listen. They had the ceremonies in abundance, but they were not saved by them. They had the morning and the evening lambs. They were circumcised. They ate the Passover. They kept the Day of Atonement. But all these things together did not save them from dying in the desert, shut out by Canaan, out of Canaan by unbelief. They could not enter in because of unbelief. Nothing can make up, he says, for the absence of faith. They failed to enter in because they looked to the ceremonies, They looked to being the people of God, but they did not look to God uh, by faith. Well, let me conclude by asking you this. How many Jacobs, I mean, how many Joshuas and Caleb's are here this morning? How many of of the daughters of of Zelophehad are there this morning? We tend to be very weak, do we not, spiritually? That our faith is weak. But here's the gospel. That there is a greater than Moses. One who lived the life that we don't live. He died the death we deserve. And he's raised from the dead. So that we might have everlasting life. He has finished the work. He's accomplished all there is to accomplish. 
And so we come as God's people together to put our faith and trust in what he has already done. I invite you to do that this morning as God's people. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that you do work among your people. As we take communion today, we'll be reminded of this, that there'll be a dividing line of those who feed upon Christ and rest in him by faith. And Father, there'll be those who see this as simply ceremonies. But Father, we pray that your spirit would work in our lives today, that in the midst of your people, we might rejoice in what you have done for us, what you've accomplished through the personal work of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray now that you would bless our time at communion. And we ask it in your name and for your sake. Amen.